Welcome to episode 19 of Shelf Life. This is one of our longer event episodes and features the recording of An Evening with Ellie Griffiths from 10th of February 2021. She discusses her recent book Nighthawks with fellow author Jane Shemelt. I'll now hand over to Catherine and Jane to tell you more about the event. I hope you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life. Welcome everyone. I am really delighted this evening to be joined by not just one but two brilliant authors. So we've got best-selling Bristol-based author Jane Shemelt, who will be our host for this evening. She has a postgraduate diploma in creative writing from both um, Bristol University and the Bath Spa MA. And her most recent book, Little Friends, was published last year by Penguin. So she will be hosting this evening's event um, with one of the most borrowed authors in UK libraries. Um, so the best-selling crime author, Ellie Griffiths. Her series of Dr. Ruth Galloway novels, featuring a forensic archaeologist, are set in Norfolk and regularly hit the Sunday Times top 10 in hardback and paperback. The series has won the CWA Dagger in the Library Award and has been shortlisted three times for the Steakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year. She joins us this evening to talk about her new book, The Nighthawks, which is the 13th in the series. And so, without further ado, I shall hand over now to Jane. Thank you, Catherine. And hi, Ellie, and hello to everybody else. I can't tell you how pleased and honoured I am to be here this evening to talk to Ellie, who, as you've heard, is award-winning and best-selling author. But I'll just add that Ellie was a Richland Judy Club pick and last year won the prestigious Edgar Award for The Stranger Diaries, so that is terrific. Now, Ellie is going to give us a little precy of Nighthawks, following which we'll have a chat, and then Ellie will kindly read you a little bit of the book just to whet your appetites, and I can tell you where to buy it. And after that, we'll ask you for your questions. So, Ellie, if you want to just give us a little precy of Nighthawks. I think that would be lovely for everyone. Um, so thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Bristol Libraries. Huge fan of libraries in general. Bristol Libraries are, are a fantastic service. I'm also a fan of Jane's Just Read Little Friends, which is just heart-stopping, really. So I'm so delighted to be here. So I'm going to talk about um, The Nighthawks, which is my new book, the new Ruth Galloway book. It's number 13 in the series. Um, and I don't want to give too many spoilers away in case anyone hasn't read any of the books. The first book in the series is The Crossing Places, and it's about a forensic archaeologist called Dr. Ruth Galloway, who in that very first book is consulted as forensic archaeologists often are when the police find buried bones. And, and Ruth is drawn into that case and incidentally into a very complicated relationship with the policeman. DCI Harry Nelson. And it's only fair to say that the, com the, the relationship doesn't get any less complicated in this book. So Nighthawks is a name given to, it's a pejorative term really, for um, unlicensed metal detectorists or people who take artifacts uh, from archaeological sites. But in this book, it's a name of, of a quite legitimate group of metal detectorists who do nevertheless go out at night. And in the very beginning of this book, whilst prospecting for treasure on the North Norfolk coast, near Blakely Point, if anyone knows it, they find a dead body. 
But they also find a, a Bronze Age skeleton. So not only is um, Nelson called in, DCR Nelson, but also Ruth to look at the skeleton. And she brings with her, totally uninvited, her really irritating new lecturer, David Brown. So uh, Ruth is then involved both in the case of the uh, Bronze Age skeleton, who himself looks like a murder victim, and into the case of the... Um, the, the dead man who is who is washed up on the shore and a bit further into the book she gets involved in a case of a supposed murder suicide in a sinister farmhouse deserted farmhouse called black dog farm and as soon as they go to black dog farm nelson is informed by all his helpful norfolk um colleagues that uh of course it must be haunted by the black shuck which is a sinister black dog which haunts a Norfolk coastline. And let's just say that if he appears to you, it's not a good thing. Okay, well, that actually leads nicely into my next query because um, of all the marvels in this book, I found place to be just amazing. The place you describe is in itself a character, that bleak, beautiful Norfolk coast, which I know a little bit too. And you conjure that just brilliantly. Um, as I say, it plays an important role on its own. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you did make that feel so real. Thank you so much, Jane. That's just a lovely thing to say. Really the best thing I think you could say about the book. So really just to go back to the beginning of the series. So um, the, the whole series, the Ruth series, really started with place. It started with the place, started with that North Norfolk coast, actually. Um, I was walking along Titchwell Marsh with my husband, Andy, who's an archaeologist, which is quite helpful, really. So I was walking along the, the coast with, with Andy and our kids, who were then quite young. Then we've got twins who are now 22, and I think then they were about six or so. Anyhow, we're walking along um, uh, one of the tracks across Titchwell Marsh, and Andy happened to say that prehistoric people thought that marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea but something in between mm. they thought mm. it was a bridge to the afterlife neither land nor sea neither life nor death a liminal zone an in-between place and that's why you find bodies buried there the so-called bog bodies sometimes you find weapons sometimes you find treasure it's to mark that boundary between life and death really and as soon as he said that on this beautiful mm. but um quite bleak bit of, of marshland uh the entire idea for the crossing places the first book came into my head and i did sort of see ruth walking towards me out of the mist and I kind of knew that in this series, of course, then I didn't realize it would be a series. I only had a one book deal for the first book. Um, I, I did think that it, it, the book would be about, um, not only about beautiful Norfolk today, but about the layers of history. Norfolk is an incredible part of the country. It's been inhabited for a very, very long time. The oldest human footprints outside Africa were found at Haysborough, Norfolk. Um, and if Andy was involved in that dig. And um, so people have lived there a long time mm -hmm. and they've left their mark on the landscape, it, partly in, in bones. This is, this is how I hope to escape, you know, what, what we sometimes think of as the midsummer murders trap, you know, when some beautiful part of the country is unfeasibly full of bodies. Um, and, and the fact is that Norfolk is full of bodies. It's full of bones, just that some have been buried a very, very long time. So not only do you have those physical manifestations of people who've gone 
before, but as in this book, you have the myths and the legends and the way that we've interacted with the landscape. So I hope that does all come together in the books. And the wonderful thing is, um, I don't know what else I'm going to run out of, but I'm never going to run out of Norfolk and I'm never going to run out of legends, I don't think. I, I mean, that is something I really admired because it, it's such a kind of unifying theme. I felt that you brought together the past of the characters very subtly because, in fact, I haven't read all these books, but I could feel the layers waiting the chapters in, in a very kind of delicate way so that you knew that, like when you encounter somebody for the first time, you know there's a hinterland there, and I knew that that was there too. And so you have all these wonderful layers that involve characters, relationships, their own past, which is very important in this book, isn't it? The, the past, and then um, the past under your feet, as well as the mythical past. And myths play a very important part in this book, don't they? They, they really do. Thank you, Jane. I'm so glad you think that because you said to me sort of apologetically, oh, you know, this is the first one I think that you read. And I said, I'm so happy <laughs> because you, you you enjoyed it. And you do worry, some, a big worry, really, when you've written so many books because you want each book to be fresh. Uh, but there to be these resonances of the past as well. Yes. So you, your characters can't continually say things like, oh, I remember that terrible night. But of course, being a crime writer, you can never say, oh, I remember to an ex-murdered wife, which is what they probably would say. You have to sort of dance around that a bit. So I'm glad you felt that the past was there, but not kind of intrusively, because of course, they not only is there the distant past, um, they're their pasts and they're, they're all sort of rather uh, entangled now. But yes, legends are really important in this book. And I think this book particularly. So this book was written entirely in lockdown. I started it in February 2020. Um, and, and pretty soon lockdown came, maybe just when I, the first few pages were not written in lockdown. But generally it happened. And I think that might be why this book is almost... It's almost my most Norfolk of my books. And I think it was because I was missing Norfolk and I wish I could go there because, of course, normally I'd be there a lot mm -hmm. researching or doing events and things like that. So I think I, I sort of brought together all my feelings about Norfolk and also brought together lots of legends. So not only do you have the Black Shark, who, uh, of course, Cathbad, the Druid character, is quick to tell people that not only does the Black Shark exist, but he's actually seen him. Um, but you get the sharing of Mermaid, which is a mermaid that is meant to have hauled itself up from the beach in that sort of uncomfortable way of sea creatures on land up to the local church because of the beautiful singing there. And actually in Sharing Church, you can see a carving of her. Um, and also the, the uh, perhaps a less known story of the Norfolk sea monster. Apparently there is a Norfolk, a Norfolk sea serpent, last seen in the 1930s, I think, by the mayor of Norwich. So kind of all these creatures that are sort of all, I just thought of that when I was saying it, all sort of about land and sea and the spaces in between. So, yes, it's all there in this book, as well as, you know, the, the Bronze Age and Beaker people coming in and all sorts of stuff. So hopefully all the Norfolk ingredients are there. Well, it feels like very rich picking. I was interested to hear about the very beginnings of this whole series. And I wonder, as a writer, do you have some concept? I, actually, you probably didn't if it was just a one book um, deal. But at some point, do you see it as a whole overarching work? Or are you just dealing with the stories as they come up. It must be quite difficult holding that in balance, both the longer term themes and the individual stories. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, I don't know, because we were chatting and your books are mainly standalones, aren't they, Jane? They are. I've got one that go, that is picks up the characters and takes them forward. And I had to be quite careful, as you said before, in not giving away the plot. But actually, it was quite nice, I have to say. You get quite fond of characters when you write about them, even if they're not the most pleasant. And you, you kind of feel you know them very well. They're a bit like a family. And so it was lovely to kind of have them going on. And perhaps you feel like that with yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Because, and I think that's the point, isn't it? Even if you know there's not going to be another book, they do carry on in your head. And, and I guess most people know that uh, before I wrote the Ruth books, I did write four books as Domenica de Rosa under my own name. Uh, sort of uh, books about sort of families, relationships, things like that. But they were sort of standalones, mostly set in Italy. Um, and I really did want to be with those characters when I finished it. And I felt quite sad. Incidentally, one does have an archaeologist in it. Um, and I, I, you do want to be with them again. So it feels like a great privilege to have that time to expand that, which probably already goes on in your head anyhow. So yeah. I think when I wrote The Crossing Places, I did know that there would be a long story, even yeah. if I didn't tell it. Yeah. Um, but I did hope to tell it. And yeah. I think that book ends on a kind of emotional cliffhanger. So I kind of hoped that I would get to write another one. But but having said that, you know, I did know there would be a long story, but lots of the things that have happened, I didn't plan. Um, mm -hmm. And and I kind of, I, I, I've decided that that's a good thing. <laughs> Just had to sort of say that that's a good thing because it is a bit like life, isn't it? So you kind of know what you want to happen, but lots of things happen along the way. Yeah. To stop that so uh, that's kind of how it's evolved i i completely see that that keeps it very fresh um one of the things that i wanted to ask you about was the utter authenticity of the police thread that obviously underpins the story and i mean i don't know a lot about police work but i was just blown away by as i say the authenticity that camaraderie amongst the team, the bacon butties, the little rivalries that happen, and the, then the tilt into the deadly seriousness and the feeling of security when this wonderful Nelson hoes into view, you sort of know he's going to sort it all out. I just wondered how you got that so right. Oh, Jane, that's such a nice thing to say. And I'm very <laughs> pleased to hear it because I have personally got no experience of the police at all. Really? Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I do have a very good police advisor who's called Graham Bartlett um, and he's he, he runs um, for any writers out there he does run a, a, um, a company advising authors and he yeah. was but I've met him actually with Peter James so Peter James is a oh, very yeah. well-known crime writer set yeah. in Brighton and has been very generous and kind to me and I think invited me to, to a launch of one of his books and, and Graham was there because he's Peter's advisor so we got chatting and so Graham has now advised me on on the, the quite a few of the last books and he's a very good advisor actually he's also a writer I'm really really looking forward to his novel which comes out soon actually um because he he'll say I'll ask him something and he'll say um well that's very unusual that that should happen so I say I take that to mean oh yeah that could happen but you know maybe <laughs> I, but he's very good because he says into me like he says well maybe you shouldn't do that but that is what Nelson would do so he's very he's read all the books and he knows the characters so he's 
great like that. And yeah. I think one of the things I did take from, from uh, Graham talking to him and talking to his colleagues is that camaraderie, the sense of the police together and, and the sort of black humour that they have, but also the sense of watching out for each other. I did want to. I mean, I also have a fantastic academic advisor, actually, a really good, oh. really, really good friend, Mary Williams, who's actually now so exalted she's a dean uh, yeah. of her university, but uh, we were at university together. Um, and, and she's similar because I'll ask her, I'll say, so, I'll be halfway through writing the book and I just type a little message saying, Mary, what would Ruth be doing now? And she'd be oh. saying, well, maybe she'd be, you know, she'd be in a meeting looking at this. Now she's, she's head of department in this book. And I said, department, maybe she'd be doing that. So she's just very good because she also enters into it as a reader and as somebody who's read all the books, you know. So I think advisors like that are absolutely amazing. And I've, I've, I've got a very good archaeology advisor, though not my husband. Oh, doesn't do, even... Do. Doesn't I'm, even read the books, Jane. Do you not? Do you go on dicks with him? I was wondering because again, that sounds very, very real. I um, have been, I have been on digs, but I would never go with Andy. <laughs> we're, we're very happily married. We've been married twenty nine years. Um, but <laughs> one, I wouldn't let him read my books, and two, I wouldn't go on a dig with him. So he has, he has introduced me to lots of really good archaeologists. And and uh, but partly because I'm a terrible digger, Jane. After ten minutes, I want to have a cappuccino. I'm not Ruth, you know. I'm not. I'm and I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I have not got the patience to go dusting off a little artifact. You know, I, I would, you know, take a big selfie and then want a cappuccino. So you wouldn't want me on your dig, really. I'm afraid. I know exactly what you mean. For my one of my novels, I sat in on one of my husband's operations that featured, and after about quarter of an hour, I'd had enough. He was there for eight hours, so I know, I know just what you mean. Um, You're a doctor too, aren't you, Jane? Yes, yes, I was a doctor before I became a writer. Yes, I'm a well, I was a GP. It's difficult to remember that I'm not because <laughs> I, I kind of cull it. You know, I use it, I borrow it. Well, and in a, in your former life, what did you do, Ellie? Where where? How did it sort of begin for you? This because you weren't always a writer. I think you were publishing, as I I, I was a publisher. Hmm. Yeah, I did always want to be a writer. I don't know about right. you. Uh, did you always want to go? Was it a doctor or were the two things? I, well, it was a, it, I always wanted to, but I felt I ought to do. I mean, you know, there was this sort of conflict about where, where, what you ought to do and what you really wanted to do. Um, and I think the thing about being a writer as well is there's no path, is there? You don't really. No. And that's that's both a, a lovely thing. And I do lots of talks in schools and sometimes people say, you know, how do I become a writer? And the nice thing to say is really there's no one way. There's all sorts of different ways. So exactly. I, I I did always want to be a writer. I wrote my first full-length book when I was 11. It was, called, it, it was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been something my parents taught me. Must have been something my parents talked about. Um, and it was set in, in Rottingdean, which is, is near right where I live now, actually. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I always wanted, when I was at school, I used to write um, little stories about Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Sort of in, in, the, in the, it would have been the late 70s. So, yeah, I used to write little, little stories about them at school and things like that. So I always knew that's what I wanted to do. But a bit like you, there's no way you... I don't know even if there were creative writing courses when I went to university. So that was not something that I could sort of say out loud. And so I did kind of, I suppose, what, what you would do. I read English at university. Um, and after university, I, I worked in a library for a while. I worked at Westminster Libraries, which yeah. uh, uh, have a great um, place in my heart. And then I worked in publishing. Yeah, I, I got a job at HarperCollins. Oh, and I, 
Like Dalatu Dovers, your publishers, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> and, and a very good publishers they are too. So I started off as um publicity assistant and then I eventually became a, an editor, commissioning editor, and I ended up as editorial director of children's fiction. Wow. But the funny thing was that that did slightly put me off writing. Oh, um, mm, and I think maybe it's because I absolutely loved being an editor. Maybe I was using that creative side of me, but also publishing is very, and this is not a, a criticism of it at all because I love publishing, but it is about money. And, yes. and something that I always say to my students when I teach creative writing now is to say, you know, if a publisher takes you on, it's a commercial decision because publishers take on author for one reason only. It's to make money. That's their mm. job. You know, they're venture capitalists. That's their job. So um, it, 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 it did actually put me off writing. So I wrote my what became my first published book was called The Italian Quarter. I wrote it when I was on maternity leave. Expecting oh, right. my twins, who are now 22. So that's how long ago it was. Well, I'm in awe of the fact that you've managed to write throughout their childhoods. And I think what would be very interesting, certainly to me, is how you have stayed so motivated. You know, because it, it, is, it can be a struggle sometimes, especially when you start a new book. Um, you know, and, and it's a question of sometimes of almost like grinding out the words to begin with, isn't it? Or perhaps you don't feel that. Um, oh, no, I, I'm sure we all have those days, yeah. don't we, where I suppose what has kept me motivated, because first of all, of course, um, so I didn't finish my first book on maternity leave at all. I think the kids were about four when it was eventually published. And of course, at first I was working as an editor and writing at the same time. I guess that was quite hard. But in a way, that was quite good because um, writing, I could give myself writing as a bit of a treat. So yeah. I could say to myself, if you do this stack of manuscripts, then you're going to have half an hour writing. So, you know, it was always a treat. And now I'm writing full time. I'm really lucky in that I can write full time. Um, it's still a treat. You know, I still say to myself, you know, gosh, if, if you finish the ironing and not that like a lot of people, I haven't ironed a single thing in lockdown. I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> Who needs ironing? Um, but I say to myself, if you know, if you do this domestic chore, then you can have an hour's writing and it's still a little treat. And I've got a writing shed. Uh, I'm talking to you now at the top of the garden. And when I used to go to work at HarperCollins, it was um, in Hammersmith. And I used to go through that sort of portico at HarperCollins. And I used to every single day feel a little rush of excitement. Mm. And I feel the same when I walk into my writing shed. I feel the same little rush of excitement. I just can't wait to get to work. So, so far, motivation hasn't been a problem. I don't want to say that aloud. But, you know, so far, has you know, it's what I love doing. And I aren't I lucky to do what yes. I love doing? Yes. And especially now, actually, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to be working from home, you know, without having to give up a job and all the dreadful things that have happened to people through the pandemic. It's it's actually in some ways almost made our lives easier, hasn't it? Because you can just be at home and write. Um, so how do you structure your day, Ellie? What 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 happens? You get up early, do you, and go into your writing shed and that's it? Or what? what? <laughs> how does it work? I, yes, more, more or less, although I'm not a hugely early riser. I have a cat. I have a cat called Gus. 
And normally what happens is, normally he's here actually, I think it's a bit cold for him today, but normally what happens at about eight o'clock in the morning, Gus walks up to the top of the garden and he sits by the door of the writing shed. <laughs> and um, yesterday I had to follow his little paw prints in the snow. Oh. But I went up then, he's like my little writing conscience. So he sits there. So I sort of let myself in. I have a little espresso maker, I like strong coffee, make myself strong coffee. And then I would, I'll try, I'll get down to work. I, you know, I don't have, um, you know, I try actually to start writing for even check emails and not go on social media or something like that. So I try and write a thousand words a day. That's my mantra. Um, are you a thousand words a day person, Jane? Well, it depends on the day, actually. <laughs> and it depends on the stage. I mean, I love edits and I'm editing right now. And it's very nice, that collaborative thing, somebody else giving you ideas. And that is enormous. And also, I quite agree, getting up early, so nothing is between you and the writing. I just sit down and work, and that can, can work really well. But I'm quite a slow typist, so I'd much rather write by hand, you know, so, so that can get in the way. Um, but I can't believe that, I mean, you write, you have written three books a year, Ellie, which is just amazing. I don't know how you do that. You must be on speed. <laughs> I'm not a super fast typist, but I do. Um, I know exactly what you mean about editing, by the way, because then it's it's a thing, isn't it? It's created and it's you're great. just working on it. It's, yes. It is a bit scary when there's nothing there, you know, and I remember somebody saying to me early on in my writing journey, um, you can fix a bad page, but you can't fix a blank page. And oh, I always thought that was very good yes. because you need something there, don't you? Absolutely. Um, but but I suppose I I do only do one draft. I'm not a I'm not somebody who I, and I have lots of writing friends and sometimes sometimes people say oh, I finished the draft now I'm going to start again and I could not do that. So really? basically, although obviously I make changes as I go along and once I finished I'll read it back over and try and do things like fix things like I'm editing at the moment as well, Jane. And two things my lovely editor is also called Jane has said to me is one is that I've got all the dates in 1965 wrong. I'm so sorry, Jane. Um, and the other thing is that like almost everything happens on Thursday and Jane is writing in, my, in the margin increasingly angrily, is it still Thursday? So, you know, you try and fix stuff like that, but that's why you have an editor. So, you know, I, I will change things like that. But broadly speaking, if you were to look over my shoulder while I was typing, you know, you'd see those words in the finished book. I don't change it that much. Goodness, what a skill. Um, and just before I ask you to read something, because I do, we've got some lovely questions coming in and I do want to have a chance to ask you those on behalf of everybody who's listening. But just, just one last question. If you could tell your much younger self something, what would that be oh, from your perspective now? Gosh, what a good question that would be. Um, I... I I maybe would tell them to keep to keep writing. I I, I certainly would say that. Um, I think I would say, you know, in terms of writing, you know, don't, don't wait for inspiration. Just start, you know, right. and yes. don't wait for that massively wonderful idea or great plot twist, you know, which haunts certain haunts us crime writers quite a bit just yes. sit and write and just see what happens and have faith I would say that I would say have faith that you can do it um have faith have faith in your first draft as well you know sometimes yes. um, sometimes your first draft is the best one you yes. know you don't always have to change it so I would probably say have faith you know it will happen 
and you know keep enjoying it I would probably say keep enjoying it as well that's lovely for all the potential writers in the room that's really inspiring So, Ellie, have you got something you'd like to read us? Oh, yeah, I'd love to just read the prologue of um, The Nighthawks. So yeah. this is just the beginning of uh, The Nighthawks. All along the coast on this very eastern edge of England, the tide is coming in. It rolls over dark sand at home. It crashes against the multicoloured cliffs at Hunstanton. It batters windows at Haysborough, reminding homeowners that this land is just on loan. And on this spit of land jutting out into the North Sea, it approaches from all sides, turning streams into lagoons and lagoons into unfathomable lakes. The Nighthawks are aware of the encroaching waters. This is dangerous territory after all, but they are hunters and their blood is up. Iron Age coins have been discovered in the sand near Blakeney Point and there are rumours that they're part of something really big, perhaps even a horde. The hawks spread out across the beach, their metal detectors glowing and humming. The sea rolls in, white waves on black water. A young man with a torch like a third eye on his head calls, there's something here. The other hawks converge on him, their machines picking up the message, the call of metal beneath the surface of the earth. Could be more coins, could be armour, a metal torque, arm rings. They start to dig. Someone sets up an arc light. It's not until there's a shout of tide that they realise the waters are almost upon them. Then there's another cry, coming from Troy, a young hawk stationed at the mouth of one of the estuaries winding back inland. His comrades splash over to him, taking care to keep their machines above water. There's something, says Troy, almost fell over it. He's very young, still a teenager, and his voice wavers and breaks. Alan, an older detectorist, leans out in the dark to touch his shoulder. What is it, lad? But another of the hawks is pointing his torch at the ground by Troy's feet. And they all see it. First some clothes swirling in the incoming tide, a movement that gives the appearance of life. But then, caught in a clump of seagrass, a dead body, its arm outstretched as if asking for their help. Wow. That is just such a brilliant beginning, isn't it? Thank you. It's got that kind of bleak, almost ghostly atmosphere and it just combines so much and you've left it on this note that one <laughs> to, you know, so everybody will go and buy it now. Oh, that's it's lovely to think. <laughs> <laughs> and actually on that note, um, it's available for everybody to buy Waterstones, Tesco's, Sainsbury's and the Indies. And in fact, here in Bristol, I don't know how many Bristolians we have tonight, but we have a wonderful independent bookshop called Max Minerva's. Um, and you can email them at info at maxminervas.co.uk and they deliver. So that's the brilliance of your local indie. Thanks for saying that, Jane. And yes, I should just say that most bookshops, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to have an independent or your local Waterstones, they, they, you can order online or you can just ring them up and they're delighted to, to supply books. And, yes. you know, it, it, lockdown hasn't stopped us reading and bookshops make it easy for us to buy books. So, yes. So please do. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now I'm going to start the questions and I'm going to read them out in the order I've got them. This one is from Susan. 
she says, my book group discussed the stone circle. And I, as did several others, started reading the first Dr. Galloway book and hoovered up the rest, a perfect way to cheer oneself up in lockdown. What has kept Ellie going this last year? Oh, it's a nice question, Susan. Yeah. Hi. Well, really, writing has kept me going and I've been so lucky. I mean, I have been lucky anyhow because, you know, I have been a first first bit of lockdown. I, I was with my kids as well, but now they're away at university. Um, but, you know, I haven't had to do, a, you know, a, a, a job out there, you know, on, on the on the on the face of things haven't have been in the NHS or teaching or all those hundreds of jobs or, or driving a you know bus or working a supermarket I haven't had to do that so I have been very lucky you should say that straight off but really what has kept me going is the writing I've been so lucky because I have something to do I have a deadline I'm initially um at the moment I'm contracted to write two books a year so I have to do it and and you know deadlines are good because you have to do them um and that's why writing groups are good and creative writing courses are good because they make you write um so I've been very lucky so I would say few things have kept me going uh writing having a deadline uh doing yoga I do yoga every day um having a, a very nice husband who cooks very good food and my cat wouldn't have been able to get through it without my cat <laughs> wonderful what a lovely answer okay and this next one is from Sam who asks how are you planning to resolve Ruth and Nelson's relationship Will they end up getting together eventually? This is something I'd love to know, but I don't think you're going to tell us somehow. Well, yeah. so, so, well, Sam, I could tell you, but then I would have to come and kill you. No, yes. no, not really. Um, but um, I could tell you, but I don't know, so I can't tell you. Um, I started this this series not knowing it was a series, but I did know, as we talked earlier, I always knew there was a long story and that story would involve Ruth and Nelson. Um, but I was never sure exactly how it was going to end up. And I'm still not entirely sure. But for those of you who've read uh, the Night Talks, perhaps would be able to sense that I'm coming to a maybe the end game so there won't be that many more books there will be I should have said this early on there will be more I've already started writing number 14 um and there will at least be two more so there will be more but I am starting to see what's going to happen but I couldn't possibly say <laughs> okay um so we'll go on to one from Jane, um, not me. Is there any possibility of your books being adapted for a TV series? And who would you envisage playing Nelson and Galloway? Oh, what a good, what a good question, Jane. Well, the books are have been optioned by a TV company, and they are working on a script. But having said that, that has has happened three times before. So three times, you know, and, and and I'm sure you've been in this situation too, Jane. It's it's very exciting at first, isn't it? Because they're all terribly keen and they, they they say they get you there and that they're all lovely to you. And they say things like, um, we're going to cast a Christopher Eccleston type. And you think, what is a Christopher Eccleston type? There is only Christopher Eccleston, really. Um, so they say all these things, they get terribly excited. Though I never forget the first script editor I ever met who said to me, he said, lounging in his chair was, he said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, I've solved the problem of your books. Uh, she's not an archaeologist anymore. I've got rid of Cathbad. They're not set in Norfolk. 
And I, I remember saying to my agent, oh, my gosh, you know, we've got to stop this. And to be fair, she said, yeah, we do. Um, and and uh, I thought that would be the end of them ever being on television. But, you know, another company got interested, another script editor got on board. But so it's a rather long way round of saying that it could happen and a TV company has got an option on them. But it does seem to be moving quite slowly. If I had my way with casting well I might not even be right you know um I've always thought Ruth Jones would be a good Ruth and for me uh Richard Armitage would be a, a good Nelson he is how I see Nelson in my head and I'm aware he's not how everyone sees him so I see him and I think that Cathbad should be David Tennant it is a, that's interesting isn't it because when you see like the recent production of Rebecca you can see and and it might be very different from those images that are sort of almost not really visual, which is a contradiction in terms, I suppose, but the, the, your, your internal representation of those characters, and it can be quite a shock. But I think people say that you see it as an almost like a different art form. It's something else. Um, and when it's on television as a film, you, you sort of have to let it go. So I'm preparing myself to let it go when that mystical time happens. <laughs> I, I think that's right. And I think I'd heard somebody say that either you throw yourself in and you say you're going to write the script yourself and you're going to be an executive producer, or you do, as you say, Jane, step back. And I've heard uh, Ian Rankin say um, that he's never even watched Rebus on television. Really? Yes. Because he doesn't want to start writing for the actor. And I think you're exactly right, aren't you? Sometimes the pictures are better in your head. I'm an Archer's fan. And I was quite distressed when I was sent an Archer's calendar because I don't really want to know what they look like. Thank yes. you. So. I agree with that. Okay, so this next one is from Sue, um, who says, I know this is probably an unfair question, but apart from Ruth, which of the gang is your favourite character? Oh, that's a that's a good question though. It's a little unfair, but it's a good it's a good question. I do really like Nelson. I think um my my editor Jane said to me, um, after we'd done a few books together, she said, Nelson, is he your dad at all? And he kind of is a bit like my dad. So um I, I do I do like Nelson. If we're talking about my wider circle of books though um i really like harbinder core in stranger diaries and postscript murders she's a very acerbic character um but i really like her i, I feel like I, I like writing about her but i would say almost my favorite character to write is justice who is the character the protagonist of my children's series a girl called justice mm. And I just love writing about her, partly because she is based on my mum, who, who, like Justice, was at boarding school in the 1930s. But she's indefatigable, you know, she's unsquashable, as my mum was. <laughs> and I just love that about her. So she cheers me up, really. So I'd say she's almost my favourite character to write. But of course I love Ruth. Um, I love Cathbad, but I sometimes find him quite hard to write. Because I think in order to see totally through your character's mind, you sort of need need to to share their beliefs, don't you? And sometimes mm. sometimes that's a little hard when I'm writing about Cathbad. But but Jane, you often write about real baddies. How is that? Do you feel you have to see the world through their head? Yes, and I I almost enjoy that. <laughs> you know, that's what imagination is about, isn't it? And you just sort of feel yourself sinking into this world and seeing, well, can I make it worse? Can I make it worse? And there's a sort of challenge in that, isn't there? Yes. Um, but I suppose I haven't had a druid to deal with, and I think 
but it sounds as though you do know a druid when you're talking about Cathbad. I mean, you, and the other thing that's interesting, sorry, I'm jumping a bit around, but you do this wonderful thing of kind of sitting on different people's shoulders, don't you? You don't just inhabit one character. You are what we write is called a close third to many different characters and it works beautifully. You do it so smoothly. Um, and I think that is very clever. Yeah. I think Eve in the book that I just read, she might know a druid or two. Um, I think she, the, the, I can see her being friends with, um, yeah, I have got a, a good friend who, who like me was brought up a Catholic who's now a druid. So yeah, I, I do know a druid and I, I want to be respectful of, of her and, and his beliefs when I write about them. Yes. And also live in Brighton, which is quite full of new age thinkers. So. Yes, no, I can imagine. Okay. Um, well, I think I've answered this one in a way. This was from Rose. Do I need to have read any of the others to read the Nighthawks? And I can say, sorry, I'm going to ask, can I answer this one? Because I, oh, I mean, we can both do it. But I, having just read the Nighthawks, I, I was just blown away, as I say, by the authenticity and by the layeredness of it and by the security of it. I felt... It was almost like I joined a group of very welcoming friends. They were already friends and they were welcoming me into their world. And that's what it felt like. So absolutely, you don't need to read any of the other books. What would you say, Ellie? That's such a lovely thing to say, Jane, that you entered it, you were welcomed in by a group of friends. That's so lovely. Um, well, that's that's wonderful. That I would say, though, possibly, uh, and you can read any of the books, um, as standalones but possibly for the relationships it might be better to start at the beginning which is the crossing places just just to have it all in order and if and if you're the sort of person who likes to read like that as, as I probably am so so the first one is the crossing places okay so Anne-Marie asked do you know the legends beforehand or do you research them to fit the story I do I do know some of them um and I've obviously since I've been writing the books I've been writing the books now for 13 years so I've, I've got quite a little library sort of behind me of um in my shed I only had my sort of uh, research books but I've got you know quite a lot of books on Norfolk legends and myths and things like that so I have been you know year on year sort of adding adding to them um but yes whenever I, I read a book I do sort of, whenever I write a book I sort of try and read around the area and in fact for the night talks I read a lovely book which is written by the harbour master at Wells just about about the harbour there and the fishermen and their lives and that's where I did get the Norfolk Sea monster from so I always try and sort of read around a little bit but also the great thing about Norfolk is um, because as I said earlier on people tend to People have inhabited it for a long time, but people do tend to live there a long time. They sort of go there and sort of stay there. So when you're there, people often tell you these amazing legends um, because they know them and they're in their sort of folk memory, which possibly you wouldn't get with, with London and Brighton, which are the two places I've lived, because people are just, just a bit more transient. Um, but also, I must recommend there's an amazing podcast, if anyone likes podcasts, called Weird Norfolk. And it's done by these two amazing women. And uh, just listen to that, because you're never going to run out of legends. I haven't got anywhere near the Grey Lady of Tomb, Tombland, the Sighing Stones. Oh, the, the, the village where there's, a, there's um, a funeral enacted every night. Oh, my goodness. You, you, never, you never get to the end of those legends. 
It's lovely that you've sort of wrapped them up in a way that, you know, we can have them because sometimes one's afraid that these legends will die out. So it's lovely that you've kind of caught them for us. Um, This is from Dennis Wise. Um, I'm very fond of a musician from Norfolk called Laura Connell, I don't know if I'm saying it right, who deliberately tries to channel the mythic and archaic from the area. Are you aware of her and do you see overlaps with your work? Do you know I'm not aware of her, Dennis? And she sounds amazing. I'm yeah. I'm I'm going to note to self. I'm going to look her up. She just sounds incredible. Doesn't she? Um, wow, I, I love that. When I'm not somebody who listens to music when I work, although I love music. Um, and I like like Ruth. I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, but I also like other sorts. My my son's a classical pianist, so I also like uh, you know I like a range of things. Um, but um, I had not heard of her, and I'm going to look her up because I, I just love that sort of thing. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Okay. And then here's a comment from Mike. Please can we have a calf bad standalone? <laughs> oh, Mike, that's a good idea. Isn't it? Yeah. You could also almost have a calf bad prequel because I think there's quite a lot in calf early life we don't know yeah. about. Yes. And and of course, the henge dig that they talk about in the first book happened 10 years ago. So that's a good idea. I wouldn't rule that one out. Karen says, are your books based on true events? If you're writing about true events, how do you protect yourself from lawsuits? Oh, that's a very good question. Mm. I, I've never, to my knowledge, written about a true event, except I suppose that the, the discovery of a henge. And I did uh, take the uh, um, opportunity to check that with the archaeologist who did it. So I've never, I've never written about a real true life murder. No, and and I, I don't know really the answer. Um, though my husband, before he was an archaeologist, was a lawyer, so quite handy. But I haven't, to my knowledge, done that. But I think that there, if if that's your situation, if you are writing about real life um, events, I think there there's quite a lot of material that can help you in in how much you can say and how much you can't say. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. My, mine all come from somewhere in my head. I think usually, you know, your publisher would probably be able to help yes. with that too and your editor would give you a good guide as to, you That's know, exactly right. you also know a lawyer. That's always quite useful. <laughs> um, Claire says, my daughter and I love your children's books. Will you be continuing with that series too? Claire, thank you so much. I, I'd just written myself a couple of tiny notes here. One is say you can buy the book, but Jane's done that. The other one is mention the children's book because there is a new one coming out in May and it's called uh, The Ghost in the Garden. So there will that's number three of the Justice books. I'm so glad you're enjoying them. Mm-hmm. As I say, they probably are my favourite things to write. I love writing them. And there will be at least one more because I want to take justice as far as the war. The first one starts in 1936. So the new one is The Ghost in the Garden out in May. So that's lovely. This is me again, that you can write these different genres um, uh, all together. It's nice for people to know that. So you're not just restricted by one particular one. And, you know, writing children's stories is very releasing, I think, isn't it? You're suddenly in a different, feels as though you're running after having walking very carefully down a path. You're suddenly (laughs) running over the grass. It's a lovely feeling, isn't it? It is, and, and they're, they're fairly short, and it's the, but they, they are crime novels, but they're crime novels, you know, for, for children. So yeah. murder mystery is for, for eight-year-olds. Wonderful. And 88-year-olds. Anyone can read them. Um, now we've got, do you know where Ruth's story ends? Um, so I think you probably, do you feel you've answered that one? Do you know where Ruth's story ends? N- not really, but I'm just seeing the, my way. 
Um, I heard somebody once, gosh, I think it was E.L. Doctoro said writing a book was like driving in the dark with your headlights on. And he said, um, you, you can only see a bit, but you can do the whole journey that way. So I can just see a little bit in front of me. Yes, that's a good good analogy. How, and Sylvia and Murray ask, how much of Ruth is drawn from you yourself, Ellie? Do you know, I, I actually don't think that much, really. But of course, there must be some elements of Ruth that are me. And I, it's a bit like, you know, when you have a dream and you start to tell somebody about it. And there's always an annoying person who says, everyone in a dream is you. So if you dream about your mom, you're dreaming about the motherly side of you. If you dream about your children, you're dreaming about the childish side of you. And, 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 you know, there is an element in which everybody in a book is me. But having said that, if you look at the Ruth, if you look at Ruth and Nelson, I would say I probably have more in common with Nelson. Um, so Ruth isn't me. You know, Ruth's, Ruth's an atheist and I'm not. Ruth's an archaeologist and I'm not. Ruth's an introvert and I'm not. You know, so although we do share some likings like Cats and Bruce Springsteen, I would, <laughs> would say that, you know, consciously I don't think she's very like me. I wish I was more like her. She comes from all sorts of places, probably from... You know, I, I think she just appeared out of the mist, but, you know, she probably has a lot of strong women in my life, you know, my sisters, my friends, you know. There's probably a lot of all of them in, in Ruth, really, and maybe a bit of me, but I don't think on the surface she is very much like me. Okay, the next one is from Sarah Yates, who um, may be a writer. She says, I absolutely love your books and I'm looking forward to reading The Nighthawks. I was really interested to hear that you write one draft. Do you think that's the result of your editorial training and experience? Oh, thank you. What a lovely question. I, I wonder if it's a bit now experienced just in the thought that I think, you know, I now have, I'm not confident in that I can do it because I have done it before, if that makes any sense at all. Um, but I, I and, and maybe I am a bit of an editor, you know, I do go back and sort of cut things and things, but I, I, do, I wouldn't say that um, I certainly need my editor. There's no way in which, and I'm sure you agree with this, Jane, you mm. can never be your own editor, can you? No. You know, no. I, I, I used to really love editing other writers and I, I felt that I was, you know, in all modesty quite good at seeing where they should cut and what they should do things. But I really need my editor, Jane, to say to me, oh, actually, you need a bit more here. And is it still Thursday and things like that? And one other thing that Jane, two things that Jane always says to me is one, um, cut the adverbs and two, don't anthropomorphize the animals too much because left to myself I'd have Ruth's cat Flint you know smoking a pipe and solving the problem so uh, thank goodness for Jamie <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant um this is this one's from Ashraf hi what's your advice for new writers in how to construct a good story any book recommendations can help in that oh gosh it's a great question um um, and I would actually say, don't think too much about the structure. I know that sounds a weird thing to say. Um, and I, I read a very good article by Frank Cottrell Boyce, who is a, a script writer and, and a good writer. And he said, no one ever comes out of a, a film saying, oh, my goodness, wasn't that a great story arc? You come out <laughs> saying, what about the moment where, you know, she met her old boyfriend at the pub or what about the moment when Michael came out of the loo and shot the two policemen you know those are the bits you remember you know and that last bit is a bit garbled bit of the godfather but if you think about the godfather it's three films and there is a story arc but no one ever looks at that 
you just remember your favorite bits, you know, Clemency dancing at the wedding or, you know, the 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 um the christening where, where everyone else is being shot in the background. So in answer to your question, I would say don't worry too much about it. I think a lot of it is instinctive. I really do. That there are lots of very good books about them. I I I I don't have myself read, although I teach creative writing, I haven't actually read a lot of books about the, the sort of uh, mechanics of writing, but there are lots of books about the three-act structure and things that, that people find very, very useful. Stephen King on writing is a good one. Um, but generally, I would say don't worry too much about it. I was absolutely going to say Stephen King. I think that's it's just such a wonderful, readable book. Yes, and it is. The, the, his experience kind of drips through. Now, we've got one minute. Oh, wow. And, um, it's time has flown. How has that and, happened? I don't know. <laughs> Catherine um, will come back in just a second. Shall I just try and squeeze one more in from Rose, who asked both of us, actually, do you have to work in silence or do you have music in the background? And if you do, what do you listen to? Actually, I think you've answered that because you, you like silence, don't you? I Ellie. do. What yes, about you? Yes, I, I, I shut the door. If I can hear any noise, I, I don't like working in libraries. I find, you know, the person sitting next to me clicking his pen or chewing just drives me bonkers. And and it's a bit the same with music. I, I find I can't, I just need silence to really focus. But, um, yeah. Yes, I'm... I'm I'm a oh, silence yeah. person, but there, there are a lot of writers like ambient noise, don't they? They like going to cafes, of course, yes. you know, poor them because they can't now. But um, I know a lot of people who like to sit in a cafe and listen to, to the sound. Yes. But yeah, sound of silence for me, I'm afraid. OK, um, I think we're now at eight o'clock, so I don't know if Catherine wants to come oh, back in. I, I would love to stay for hours more. Yes. but It's been I've so been much fun. Really I could stay for hours, but I think we are meant to stop. So. <laughs> I'm sure we could keep you here all evening. We've had so many questions come through. Yes, um, it, actually, a little bit overwhelmed by the number of questions. So I'm, I'm really sorry if we haven't managed to answer all of them. But um, Jane and Ellie, you have done such a great job at getting through quite a few in a really short space of time. Um, so, yes, a huge thank you to everyone for your questions. Um, and just... The biggest thank you to Jane Shemilt for hosting um, and to Ellie Griffiths. Um, thank you both so much for this talk this evening. It has been wonderful to hear your conversation and to listen to two writers talking so passionately about writing. Um, a huge thank you to everyone for joining us uh, this evening. It's been wonderful to have so many people here. Um, you can borrow um, both Jane and Ellie's books using our library app, Borrow Box. Um, so you can download those books there. Um, so I think that is everything. Um, again, a huge thank you um, both to Jane and to Ellie and thank you to the audience at home for joining us. Um, thank, thank you very much. Your evening. Thank you. Thank you. thank you. thank you, Jane. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks to everyone who came. It's been brilliant. That's it for this episode of Shelf Life. Thanks for listening. To find out more about upcoming events like this one, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. Next time on Shelf Life, we'll be back with one of the usual made-for-podcast episodes, which will be the final episode of Season 2 before we take a break. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate and review Shelf Life wherever you listen, and get in touch via the Bristol Libraries social media accounts and with the hashtag Shelf Life Bristol. Please check out the show notes for a link to our listener survey. We'd appreciate your feedback to help us plan Season 3. Huge thanks to Luke, a volunteer editor and transcriber, Dan for the theme tune, Will, a library assistant at Avonmouth who polishes off the sound, and Ollie, a library assistant at Noel for the transitional music. 
They all make shelf life possible with their amazing work. And thank you for listening. Bye for now.